I want to look at a, a verse in uh, chapter 7 of Luke. So if you want to be turning there, one of the recurring themes in passages that I've spoken of over the past few years is faith. We've talked about the, f- the great faith of the Syrophoenician women, woman, the, uh, the small faith that Jesus talked about amongst his own disciples. He called them, oh, you've little faith. And then the, the man who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We've looked at all of those passages, and I've cataloged in my mind several of those texts where in each case Jesus comments on the quality and the strength or weakness of his followers' faith. It's, it is amazing how many times he would say to his own disciples, Oh, you men of little faith. And on the other hand, he didn't utterly scorn people who had scrawny amounts of faith. He said that faith the size of a mustard seed is sufficient to move both mountains and mulberry trees. And in Mark 9, is, that's where he's approached by that desperate man who is hopeless and hesitant, who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus answers his prayer. And then there are two incidents where Jesus commends individuals for the greatness of their faith. And and the interesting thing is, both of them are Gentiles. One is the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, who, you remember, she brings the disciples to the brink of frustration because she's crying for Jesus' attention while he's trying to get some peace and quiet. And in the end, Jesus says to her, O woman, your faith is great. And then the other example of great faith that was commended by Jesus is a Roman centurion, a captain in the occupying army, whose only communication with Jesus was through intermediaries. Jesus doesn't even meet the guy face to face, but Jesus says of him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. So there's a kind of thread or running theme that you can trace through all of the comments that Jesus makes concerning faith. He speaks of great faith, little faith, weak faith. And then there's Judas, whose faith was a total sham. Judas, you know, never really had any faith at all. He fits into that category the Apostle John describes in 1 John 2.19. And in fact, John, the, the beloved disciple, probably had Judas in mind when he wrote this verse where he says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be manifested that they are not all of us. And that's a relevant text in our generation because over the past few years, we've seen a number of fairly high-profile evangelical celebrities announce to the world that they have abandoned the faith. A lot of the musicians, Christian musicians supposedly, then you had Josh Harris and Abraham Piper, And recently, Paul Maxwell, who was on the faculty of Moody Bible Institute and wrote for John Piper's media ministry. And last year, in 2021, Maxwell announced to the world, I'm no longer a Christian, he said. And then he added, it feels really good, he said. I'm really happy. Now, all of those men renounced their faith in Christ because, like Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10, They were in love with this present world. The rationale every one of them gave for why they left the faith proves that. 
And anyway, I've been thinking a lot about faith and how it grows, how it can falter, and how to keep it strong. And, and then a few months ago, something drew my attention to that moment described in Luke 7, verse 20, where John the Baptist, of all people, sends messengers to Jesus to inquire of him, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for someone else? Now, at first glance, that's a shock, because after all, John's ministry was to prepare the way for Jesus as Messiah. He baptized him. He gave, he gave testimony about him, publicly announced repeatedly that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in John 1, 34, John the Baptist makes this public confession, I myself have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. But here, he sends messengers to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we look for someone else? This is one of the most abrupt and unexpected scenes anywhere in the entire New Testament. And I'm, I'm always drawn to passages like this that confuse me, right? And I want to figure it out, and then I want to explain it to you. And so I want to look at this passage with you this morning. Luke 7, in our passage starts in verse 18 and goes through verse 35, but first here's some context. This chapter starts with two scenes that show Jesus' redemptive power. Verses 1 through 10 are the account of how Jesus healed that centurion's son from a distance without any actual face-to-face contact with either the centurion or his sick servant. Verse 9 is where Jesus turns to the crowd that was following him and says, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And then immediately following that incident is Luke's account of how Jesus raised the son of a widow from the dead, which this is a miracle that's reminiscent of Elijah, who also raised a widow's son, you remember. And here is how the people respond in verse 16, and fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report concerning him went out all over Judea and in the surrounding district. And then here's the segue into our passage, verse 18. And the disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Now, here's some background. The reason John the Baptist himself is not there is he's in prison. John has been absent from Luke's narrative since chapter 3, Luke 3, verse 20. Luke, almost in passing, mentions that Herod locked John up in prison, all the way back in chapter 3. Now, the prison where John the Baptist is incarcerated, we know where that is. It was located at one of Herod's most remote palaces. It was a desert fortress called Machaerus. It was a palace that was situated at the top of a cone-shaped hill in an otherwise barren area just to the east of the Dead Sea. One commentator describes that palace as a sinful pleasure house where Herod would go in order to indulge his insatiable lusts. You remember that Herod had taken Herodias as a concubine. She was the wife of his own brother, Philip. And Mark 6.18 tells us this is why John the Baptist was in prison. He got right in Herod's face and told him, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. 
Incidentally, Herodias was also Herod's niece, so this was a really unsavory case of incest. And it was also in that same vile pleasure palace where shortly after this, Herod would watch his own stepdaughter and, and grandniece named Salome doing a lewd and suggestive dance, and Herod foolishly offered her any reward she chose, and she demanded the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So John was imprisoned there, and he would soon die there. This was not the ending that you or I would plan out if we were writing a, a script for the life of Messiah's forerunner, right? It's a sad ending to a great life. And this prison, Machaerus, had some dismal dungeons. They were these small cave-like chambers chiseled into the rock just below floor level, dungeons that were barren and bleak, just holes in the ground where prisoners were kept. There were no beds and no amenities and, of course, no windows, just iron anchors that were embedded into the rock wall so that the prisoner could be chained there. And that's the situation John the Baptist had been in since Luke chapter 3. John, who had lived his whole life out in the open, in the wilderness, outdoors, is now confined in this dank, windowless dungeon. He was, by Jesus' own testimony, the greatest prophet and preacher of the Old Testament era, but now he's silenced. He, he was the one who introduced Israel's Messiah, who, according to Luke 4.18, had come to proclaim liberty to the captives and to set free those who are oppressed. That's how he announced Messiah. This is what he'll do. He'll proclaim liberty to the captives and set free those who are oppressed, and yet now John himself is a captive with no prospect of liberation. John had announced to the nation that Jesus was bringing a baptism of fire. And Matthew 3 Verses 10 through 12, John the Baptist is speaking about Jesus when he says this, The axe is already laid at the root of the trees, and therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist said, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So this is a, a message of harsh judgment. Don't let the charismatics fool you when they talk about baptism with fire as if that's a good thing. He's describing judgment here, harsh judgment from our God who is a consuming fire. But now the report comes to John that Jesus is out there doing acts of mercy. Look at verse 34. Even the religious leaders of Israel were pointing to Jesus and saying, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was, he was being kind and generous and gracious to these sinners rather than baptizing them with fire. So maybe it shouldn't surprise us that John is confused. But nevertheless, it does come as a kind of bombshell when, when we read this passage. John's faith is clearly under assault. And this passage breaks naturally into three sections, and they're defined by a series of questions. First, 
John's disciples come with a question for Jesus, verses 18 through 23. Then Jesus has a question for the crowd, verses 19 through 30. And then finally, the Lord has a question for the religious rulers in verses 31 through 35. And each of these sections, they focus on these different sets of questions, but each of them ends with a saying that serves as a kind of punchline. So that last verse in each section is like an exclamation mark that signals the importance of the point that's being made. The first section ends with verse 23, Jesus speaking, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. The second section culminates with verse 28, Among those born of women there is no one greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And then the third section is punctuated with this little saying, verse 35, Wisdom is vindicated by all her children. So let's look at these sections. We'll take them one at a time and follow the thread of Luke's logic here. Section 1, this is a question for Jesus, verses 18 through, 30, 18 through 23. And bear in mind, Jesus has just performed this long-distance healing for that Roman centurion. Then he raises a widow's son from the dead. These are spectacular miracles. Verse 17 tells us that the news about these remarkable events went out all over Judea and in the surrounding district. And now verse 18, and the disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or should we look for someone else? When the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or should we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Now, a number of explanations have been offered for this passage. No less than Luther and Calvin and Beza all said, all of them said, a prophet like John could not have been asking this question for his own sake. They concluded that John just wanted to strengthen the faith of his wavering disciples, and so he sent them with a question that he already knew the answer to. And the problem with that view is that the answer Jesus sends back is clearly meant for John's sake. Verse 22, go and report to John. Now, there's another common interpretation of this passage, that this was a, a veiled request from John the Baptist for Jesus to intervene and end John's imprisonment, so that under this interpretation, John's faith isn't the least bit shaken or challenged, but his patience is failing. And by this view, he's subtly asking Jesus Look, if you're the one who's going to set captives at liberty and, and burn the chaff with unquenchable fire, have you noticed this guy, Herod? And again, if that were the point, Jesus' reply to John doesn't make much sense. Then there are those who brashly interpret this passage in a way that actually impugns the, the character and the reputation of John the Baptist. They claim John the Baptist's faith was diminishing here. He's losing his faith. 
you'll hear that idea from some Arminians who think that this passage somehow bolsters their denial of the perseverance of the saints. Uh, more commonly nowadays, you might hear it from postmodernists who are seeking to justify their own deep-rooted skepticism. And so they want to portray John the Baptist as a kind of skeptic here. But again, that view is emphatically refuted by Jesus himself. In the second section of this passage, Jesus will give us his own assessment of John's faith, and he reminds us that John is not a reed shaken by the wind. In other words, John is not a vacillating or double-minded man. So then, what is going on here? Why is John asking this question? Now, let me be clear. John was as far removed from faithlessness as anyone in his generation. This is not unbelief that you hear asking this question. This is faith seeking assurance. Faith seeking understanding. John's questions were born of confusion, not cynicism or unbelief. John is understandably just trying to make sense of the many things that seemed like contradictions. He's pitting his own messianic expectations against the actual outworking of divine providence and trying to understand how it all fits together. It's the same, same things the angels looked into. How can, the, how can Messiah be suffering and yet a conqueror? Remember, we looked at that passage last week. The angels were confused as well. And, and let's be honest, this is a test all of us face. The psalmists wrote about it all the time. Why does our help not come sooner? Why do the righteous suffer when the wicked seem to prosper? And if, as we read in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God are yea, and in him amen, then why do those promises seem to go unfulfilled at times? Why, in Hebrews 11, where it describes faith, one of the things it says is these people endured in their faith even though they didn't see the fulfillment of the promises. That's Hebrews 11:39. At the end of that great roster of heroes renowned for their faith, Scripture says this, all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Why? Verse 40 tells us, because God had provided something better for us. And this is true often because between the promise and the final answer of divine providence, we sometimes exist in a state of bewilderment. And in those times, all of us ask the question, how long, O Lord? But always when the Lord's answers to our prayers seem to be delayed or non-existent, It's because God has provided something better for us. It's a theme that runs like a thread through the Scriptures. Psalm 13, a psalm of David, begins with, How long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And that's essentially the same question that the martyrs ask at the end of Scripture in Revelation 6, verse 10. How long, O Master, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And you hear that same question echoed repeatedly in Psalm 77, verses 7 through 9. Will the Lord reject evermore? Will he not be favorable again? 
Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his word ended from generation to generation? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger shut up his compassion? And what you hear in that question, from Job in the Old Testament all the way to those martyrs in the book of Revelation, what you hear is puzzlement and disorientation induced by profound personal anguish It's the fruit of suffering. It is not bare resentment or unbelief. Now take care, because it's true that if your faith is not truly anchored in Christ, confusion can sometimes metastasize into resentment or rank unbelief. And that's what happens, I think, in cases of apostasy like those recent ones we've all heard about. Their faith wasn't truly anchored in Christ, and so they couldn't weather this kind of test. But don't think for a moment that someone who renounces the faith ever had true faith to begin with, no matter how good he might have pretended to be a Christian. Again, 1 John 2.19 is explicit. They were not really of us. If they were of us, they would have remained with us. And the classic example always is Judas, who looked good and he seemed totally trustworthy. There was never an obvious blemish on his character because when the Lord forewarned that one of the twelve would betray him, all eleven faithful disciples suspected themselves. Not one of them suspected Judas. Now, I want to be clear. It's quite true that the faith of John the Baptist is under assault. He is under attack from the evil one. And no doubt the, the adversary is seeking to devour him like he does all of us. But we're not to think that John was wavering, or much less was he buckling under this trial. He is simply trying to make sense of a baffling set of circumstances. And implied in this passage is a reminder that no matter who you are, and no matter how well grounded you are in the faith, The enemy will attack your faith and try to destroy your assurance and try to confuse your understanding. As we sing in one of the old hymns, doubts arise and fears dismay, and you will be tempted to question your own faith at times. And don't coddle those doubts. Don't give in to dismay. Just remember, this is a normal aspect of the Christian experience, because James 1 verse 3 The testing of your faith brings perseverance. Now, notice what John did. Rather than brooding over this question that puzzled him or posing the problem to other people and thereby planting doubts in their minds, John took his question to the right source. He went to the only one who he knew could give him a definitive answer, or he sent his messengers to ask that question because he couldn't go himself. And Jesus answers John's questions in a most remarkable way. Verse 21, at that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits and granted sight to many who were blind. So he performs what I think Luke intends to describe for us here is an unprecedented torrent of miracles, miraculous healings, deliverances. And then he tells John's disciples, verse 22, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. That, by the way, is an echo 
of several Old Testament messianic promises that John, of all people, would be well familiar with. For example, Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. In other words, to preach the gospel to the poor. And Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. And John the Baptist surely knew those texts by heart, because his entire ministry was all about the fulfillment of the messianic promises. And no doubt he knew that those last two verses were immediately preceded by this one, Isaiah 35, verse 4, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. So it's clear, isn't it, that Jesus' reply to John's question is an encouragement. It's not a rebuke. And Jesus is keen to make that fact clear to everyone within earshot. Not only the multitudes who followed him, but, but specifically the Pharisees who were hounding him because they were looking for a reason to accuse and condemn him. And so don't read that punchline in verse 23 as a rebuke to John the Baptist. It's not. Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. That's not a warning or a reproof. It's a blessing. And explicitly so, because John the Baptist was never aggrieved or resentful or annoyed or repelled or scandalized or made to stumble by Jesus. And in fact, the word Jesus employs in that aphorism means all of those things. It's the word scandalizo. You recognize it as the root of our word scandalized. Blessed is he who is not scandalized by me. The Pharisees were scandalized by Jesus, as you're about to see. John the Baptist never was. And so Jesus is blessing him here. He's not scolding him. And he wants that made absolutely clear, and he's going to make it categorically clear in the next section of our passage. So let's look at this, section two, a question for the crowd. And the shift in focus is signaled by the departure of John's disciples, verses 24 through 30. And when the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to behold? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft garments? Behold, those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and even more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the scholars of the law rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Now, John was, of course, famous throughout all of Israel for his ministry and his message as the forerunner of the Messiah, John 1.21. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? 
And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. Therefore they said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John the Baptist said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. So it's well known that he was not only the Messiah's forerunner, but also that he had singled Jesus out as the one for whom he was preparing the way. He had pointed specifically to Christ and said, this is the one. John wasn't the least bit interested in his own fame or popularity or the size of the crowds he drew. He said of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. And so when these disciples came and asked Jesus, within earshot of the multitudes, are you the one who's to come or should we look for another one? Those who heard that question, they might have been scandalized. Here was the prophet who baptized Jesus and launched his public ministry, and he's asking a question like this. How do you make sense of that? Jesus' words in verses 24 through 28 and also in verse 33 imply perhaps that people had begun to question the authority and maybe even the fundamental legitimacy of John the Baptist. Because people, as we know, are pathologically fickle. It's one of the manifestations of our fallenness. Just the fact that John was languishing in prison would have been enough for some people to write him off as, okay, he's just a God-forsaken crank and a troublemaker who perhaps is getting what he deserves. That's what people did with the Apostle Paul. And, And because John sent his disciples with a question like this, you know that John's worst critics, especially the Pharisees, would no doubt seize this opportunity to say, see, even John the Baptist isn't really sure about his own message. Because after all, Jesus himself had not yet publicly declared that he was the Messiah. Matthew 16, 20 says, he had warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. And that may have added to John's confusion. It certainly emboldened these Pharisees who actually they knew very well that Jesus had all the credentials to qualify as the true Christ, but they were determined to oppose him anyway. And Jesus, for his part, just let his works, the endless outpouring of miracles, speak for themselves. That miraculous outpouring stood as the only testimony of Christ about who he was. And even his reply to John the Baptist underscores that. Rather than a direct verbal answer to John's question, he could have said, yes, I am the Messiah. He didn't. Instead, he sent John's disciples back with a report of such miracles that there couldn't be any doubt about his messianic credentials. It wasn't just him claiming to be Messiah. He was doing the work of Messiah. And uh, John 7.31 records the words of the crowd who believed in him. They were saying, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than this man did? How could this not be the Messiah? Nobody could do more than this. So Jesus' works ought to have been sufficient proof of his true identity. And for those whose eyes were opened, including John the Baptist, obviously, that really was all the confirmation they needed. Jesus knew that John would not require any more of an answer than than the reply that he sent back with these disciples. 
It was proof that he was Messiah. But all of this is surely baffling to these multitudes who had not yet come to faith in Christ. If Jesus was the promised one, why would the Pharisees, these are the the most rigorously fastidious religious leaders in their world, why would they openly oppose Christ if he was truly the Messiah? And why did even John the Baptist now seem a little bit uncertain? And so Jesus himself clears the air with a series of statements designed to sweep away any possible confusion about the steadfastness and trustworthiness of John. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't say these things about John until after the messengers of John had left, verse 24. So it's clear, these are not words of flattery. John didn't need, and and I think John probably wouldn't have even appreciated, public blandishment. He didn't need to have his ego propped up or have his self-image stroked. He had asked a frank and forthright question with no hidden agenda, and Jesus knew that the answer he sent back was the only answer John would ever require. And so although what Jesus says here is practically the highest praise he ever bestowed on any individual, he says these things not for John's benefit, but for the sake of the multitude's. Jesus had already done what he needed to do to dispel the bewilderment of John the Baptist. Now Jesus needed to refute whatever fallacies there might be in the thinking of these multitudes of people. And so he reminds them of John's bold inflexibility. In the words of Matthew Henry, John the Baptist was a man firm as a rock, not fickle as a reed. If he could have bowed like a reed to Herod, and have complied with the court. He might have been a favorite there, but none of these things moved him, Matthew Henry says. In fact, you remember that scene in Matthew 3, verse 7, when John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for his baptism. John actually could, if he was a typical 21st century evangelical, he probably would have sought partnership with these powerful Pharisees in a way that would increase his stature and make his life a thousand times more comfortable. But instead, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And therefore, bear fruit keeping with repentance. He sends them away and says, you really repent and then come back and see me. And never in all of the New Testament do you see any indication of indecision or vacillation, or wavering, or cowardice in John the Baptist. And Jesus is making clear that this current incident is no exception to that steadfast character quality that John was so well known for. Again, what we have here is true faith seeking understanding. John raised this question because he wanted clarity and assurance. He's trying to understand how what he firmly believes is true can possibly be reconciled with what's actually happening to him. So he's not challenging Jesus' role as Messiah. He's not looking to revise his early affirmation of Christ. He's simply trying to make sense of these well-known prophecies that he himself had declared and promises that the Old Testament was full of that were not yet being fulfilled. Bottom line, he's like the rest of the Old Testament prophets in that he had no framework for understanding the two advents of Christ. 
He had foretold judgment yet to come, a prophecy that is absolutely true about a reality that, frankly, is still looming. But the judgments John foretold were not to be fulfilled at that time. John 3.17, For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Jesus says in John 12, 47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And then in the very next verse, he adds, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. So judgment is coming. And John 5.22, the Father has given all judgment to the Son. So the prophecies of judgment are true. But because God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, He delays the outpouring of His wrath while He calls sinners to repentance. Jesus obviously knew that John the Baptist was not going to be stymied by the answer He gave. We're not expressly told how John received the message, but Jesus' words about John's faithfulness clearly signify that Jesus knew that John would remain rock solid. He's not concerned about the stability of John's faith. The multitudes, they were the ones teetering on the brink of unbelief and apostasy. Most of the Pharisees were already there, but not John the Baptist. The question Jesus asks about John is a rhetorical question. What did you go out in the wilderness to behold? A reed shaken by the wind? And everybody knew John was no reed shaken in the wind. And furthermore, Jesus reminds them of his rugged moral character. There was nothing delicate or fragile about John. He was not a man easily triggered. Verse 25, But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft garments? Behold, those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. John, not in a royal palace, he's literally in the king's dungeon. But even when he was a free man, before he got imprisoned, John lived in the wilderness, an incredibly hot and hostile environment. This was an arid desert, lacking any amenities, devoid of soft things, barren of any delicacies. And Mark 1.6 says John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and was eating locusts and wild honey. That's his life. This was not a weekend survival exercise with Bear grills. This is how John lived his whole life. It is the polar opposite of soft. And John's ruggedness is reflected in how he spoke the truth. He didn't didn't sand off the, the sharp edges. He didn't water down the strong truths. He didn't try to soften or omit the hard parts. He didn't put a shade over the light so that it would be easier for people who love darkness to receive it. And I think John would not have been warmly welcomed by the typical evangelical today. He wasn't particularly diplomatic. He didn't try to be suave and stylish. He was a prophet of the opposite sort because he was a true prophet. Now, don't get me wrong. He wasn't pugnacious or ill-tempered. His ruggedness was not that sort of artificial, swaggering machismo that bullies like to display in order to seem tough. His coarse clothing and lifestyle These are natural expressions of a simple, honest 
down-to-earth character. There was absolutely nothing uncouth or improper about him. But he was fearless when it came to speaking the truth. He was single-minded when it came to fulfilling his calling. He was unaffected by popular opinion or, or the trends and fashions of either the Romans or Jewish culture. There was nothing at all soft or squishy about him. It was one of those things that made him truly great. As Jesus says, literally the greatest among those born of women, this side of the kingdom. And Jesus commends him not only for his bold inflexibility and his rugged moral character, but also for his high calling. There's a third question for the crowd, verse 26. But what did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I say to you, and even more than a prophet. So how is he more than a prophet? Well, he was the forerunner. He was the singular, divinely appointed precursor to Christ. All the other Old Testament prophets saw the Messiah as a promised deliverer who belonged somewhere in the prophetic future. They spoke of Christ. John the Baptist identified him. John literally introduced Christ to the world. He prepared the way for him. He singled him out. He baptized him, and he declared who he was. So that unlike any other prophet, John was filled with the Holy Spirit from infancy in order to fulfill this job. And then more than any other prophet, he elevated the nation's messianic anticipation. He then literally ushered Christ into public ministry. And so John was the most privileged of the prophets. He was the most enlightened among them as to the identity of the true Messiah. And perhaps out of all of the prophets, John the Baptist exhibited the most single-minded single devotion to his calling throughout his life. Verse 27, Jesus says, This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. High praise from Jesus. But then he adds this phrase, Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, let's be honest. The kingdom of God, as we know it right now, is full of people who, compared to John the Baptist, don't fare very well, right? I mean, I put myself at the head of that list. I am neither as steadfast or as rugged as John the Baptist. All of his distinctive qualities put all the rest of us to shame. So in what sense is it true that the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist? Well, several ways. It should be obvious, first of all, that those who follow the Lamb are in a better position than the greatest of men who went before Him. Or to put it the way the MacArthur Study Bible says it, believers after the cross participate in the full understanding and experience of the atoning work of Christ, which John merely foresaw in shadowy form. And that's true. John the Baptist had announced Christ's coming... We proclaim that Christ came and was crucified and was buried and risen, glorified, ascended, and that he now sits at the right hand of God the Father making intercession for us. We know all of that, that John didn't. And by reason of our union with Christ, we too are risen and seated with Christ in heavenly places. And in that sense, we have a greater message and higher privileges than John the Baptist. 
We don't make as much of that as we should, but it's true. And by the way, according to Luke 1.36, Elizabeth, John's mother, was a relative of Jesus' mother. So, so John and Christ were cousins. We're brothers and joint heirs with Christ. John was his messenger. We're a kingdom of priests. We have a greater position than John in all of those ways. And perhaps Jesus is also looking beyond our position today in this life and seeing the kingdom of God in its eternal fulfillment. John, as great as he was, still had all the infirmities and imperfections of fallen humanity. And all of us, including John, in the kingdom will be greater than that. Verse 28, by the way, is the punchline to the second section of the passage. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That is not only an unqualified affirmation of John the Baptist from the lips of Jesus, it also points the crowd back to the real point of Jesus' own ministry and message, namely the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus has been seeking to declare and to demonstrate. He wants people in this crowd to ponder where they themselves stand with regard to the kingdom, rather than concerning themselves any further with questions about John the Baptist. And so in an amazing economy of words, Jesus vindicates John the Baptist and gets his message back to the back on topic with the multitudes. It's as if John Jesus was saying, you don't need to question the faith and faithfulness of John the Baptist. He is rock solid. But you do need to concern yourselves with your own faith. Examine yourselves. Have you entered the kingdom of God by faith? And then there comes this two-verse segue. No matter what version you're reading, if you have a red-letter Bible, the editors have probably put those two verses in black. And understand that the red letters in your Bible simply reflect how the translators interpret the passage. There is no indication in the original text whether Jesus spoke what is recorded in those two verses, or more likely, that's a comment interjected by Luke. I think it probably is a comment interjected by Luke, but either way, it's inspired and authoritative truth. But most commentators believe, and I, the context seems to indicate that Luke is the one who makes this comment, that the people and the tax collectors acknowledged God's justice having been baptized. In other words, the common people, including some of the most notorious sinners among them, they had responded to the Baptist's call for repentance, and thereby they acknowledged the righteousness of God. But on the other hand, verse 30, the Pharisees and the scholars of the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. They rejected John's message, and therefore they spurned Christ. They weren't baptized because John's was a baptism of repentance, and they refused to repent. They didn't believe they had anything to repent of. In some cases, as we see in that Matthew 3 passage, verses 7 and 8, they came for baptism, but John refused to baptize them because he knew they weren't truly repentant. And it's an interesting comment. They rejected God's purpose for themselves. That doesn't mean they thwarted the eternal purpose of a sovereign God. 
Because Ephesians 1.11 tells us God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And in Isaiah 46, verse 10, God himself says, My counsel will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. So these Pharisees couldn't possibly frustrate God's purpose with regard to what he himself will do. But they refused his will, his revealed will, with what regard to they themselves should do. They didn't do it, didn't repent. Acts 17.30, God commands everyone everywhere to repent. And these Pharisees spurned the call of John the Baptist for them to repent. And that's the two-verse segue that brings us to section 3 of this passage. This is a question for the religious rulers. And this extended passage that we're dealing with began in verse 18 with a question for Jesus. Then we saw verse 24, Jesus with questions for the crowd. Now he has a question for the religious rulers. Verses 31 through 35, Jesus asks, To what then shall I compare the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, who say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Now, in that first section, John's apostles are questioning Jesus in front of a multitude. In the second section, Jesus is praising John in front of the Pharisees. Here in the third section, he is condemning the Pharisees in front of the people. And he pulls no punches. When he says, the men of this generation, he is looking at and singling out the religious rulers and their followers. We know that from the description. The Pharisees were constant critics, just as he describes here. First, antagonistic to John the Baptist, and then relentlessly hostile and accusatory against Christ. And by the way, that expression, this generation, carries the sense of the the English phrase, you and your ilk. You know, if anyone ever uses the, the word ilk in, in reference to you, you, you know it's not going to be a compliment, right? <laughs> and likewise, when Jesus says, this generation, that's never a good thing. The expression, this generation, is used 17 times in the New Testament, always by Jesus, and in Luke eleven twenty nine, he says, this generation is a wicked generation. Then he uses the expression again, four verses in a row, six times before the end of Luke 11, saying things like, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. And then he finishes the rebuke in Luke 11, verses 50 and 51, where he says twice that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world will be charged against this generation. He's not talking about this generation of everybody. He's referring to people like these Pharisees who were deeply religious, but they wanted a religion that pleased them more than it honored God, just like today's mainstream evangelicals. They devised both their doctrine and their worship according to what pleased them, and they weren't pleased with the message of Christ. 
and his claims of exclusivity and the standard of holiness he demanded and his refusal to bend to their preferences and follow their rules. In short, they were irritated that Jesus didn't honor them the way they honored themselves. And Jesus portrays them as childish, like kids in the marketplace. One kid says, let's play wedding and the rest don't want to celebrate. And another kid says, okay, then let's play funeral. And now they aren't in the mood to mourn. And so they sit and sulk. Like little children, they are capricious, clueless, and contrary. Capricious in that they're silly, not serious. They make these ridiculous, utterly groundless accusations against true men of God. Verses 33 and 34, John the Baptist has a demon. Jesus is a drunkard. They're clueless in that they are oblivious to the gravity of life. They're just playing games with eternal matters, thinking they can reject their Messiah without seriously pondering the eternal consequences of that kind of rebellion against God. That, by the way, is precisely what multitudes of people in our generation are doing. Don't be of that ilk. And they're contrary, as seen in the petulance of these stubborn but contradictory complaints against both Jesus and John the Baptist. John is too austere for them. Jesus is too genial. Nothing would satisfy them short of a Messiah who would bow to their lordship and their personal preferences. It's one thing to question what you believe. It's a whole different matter when you refuse to believe what God says. And here's the punchline, verse 35. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Now, on one level, that's similar to the saying, you know, by their fruits you shall know them. You can recognize true wisdom by the fruit it bears. That's the meaning. But I think this also harks back to verse 29. All the people and the tax collectors acknowledged God's justice. God's righteousness is vindicated by those who believe. God's wisdom is likewise substantiated in the salvation of sinners. And incidentally, Matthew's account of this passage, Matthew eleven nineteen, 19, says it like this, Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So we know, of course, that Christ is the wisdom of God incarnate. 1 Corinthians 1, 24, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And he is vindicated by both his deeds and his children, the people he rescues from sin. And this is the very answer Jesus gave to John the Baptist, isn't it? Are you the one who's to come, or should we look for someone else? Go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who doesn't take offense at me. He's saying, look at his works. Look at those whom he redeems. This is clearly the true Messiah, and blessed are those who are not offended by him. They are blessed indeed, even in poverty, imprisonment, persecution, any of the other hardships that we face in this fallen world. And that's true, as in the case of John the Baptist, up to and including martyrdom. Every believer has the assurance of eternal life in heaven forever. God will bless us despite what happens to us in this life. And that's the end of this narrative. 
And the next time John the Baptist is mentioned in Luke's gospel is just two chapters after this. And here's how we learn of the death of John the Baptist from Luke. Luke 9 verse 9 quotes Herod almost in passing. And Herod says, I myself had John beheaded. And that's it. It seems like a humiliating, unheroic end for someone whom Jesus declared was the greatest of all the prophets. But it's in keeping with what we read of those heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world is not worthy, wandering in desolate places and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. That's literally the life of John the Baptist. It's not a message of earthly riches and comfort, is it? This is not the prosperity gospel. No, but it's something infinitely better. Matthew eleven twenty nine. rest for your souls. There's abundant spiritual blessings in this life for those who believe. But better yet, best of all, Luke 18, 30, in the age to come, eternal life. That's the best part. That's our guarantee that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And what is this glory that is to be revealed? It's perfect Christ-likeness for us. Total freedom from sin and its wretchedness. True freedom from spiritual captivity. Freedom from evil desire. When according to Romans 8.21, creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's the glory that will be revealed. It's the fullness of redemption. Messiah has already purchased it. It's the birthright of all who believe. And if you've never entered into it by faith, I urge you to come to Christ today. Blessed is he who does not take offense at him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that true light that shines in our darkness. We look to Christ, the incarnate word, and to Scripture, the written word, to dispel our confusion and give us victory over every assault against our faith. Keep us anchored by faith in Christ and keep us walking by faith through the precepts of your word. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. We look forward to that time when our faith will be sight, when death is swallowed up in victory, when all that is mortal is swallowed up by life, and when Christ appears and we see him as he is, and finally we are made like him. Hasten that day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, all rights reserved.